Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Uh, we're doing a series on the, these special women in the genealogy of Jesus. And the reason we call it unlikely is because when you know their background and you know their story or their history, you go, how can these people be in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ? And yet their stories are basically the gospel lived out in the lives of these very special people. Today we're looking at Ruth. Uh, Ruth is uh, one of the most important of, of the ancestors of Jesus. And also she has her own book in the scriptures. So we're going to go to the book of Ruth. We're going to look at chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. Today, I really would like you to read out loud with me. Let's read God's word together. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, the book of of Ruth centers around the story of this woman we just read about, actually, Naomi. And um, what I had you read there is actually the culmination of the book. The four chapters, an incredible love story in this book. So first, I want to talk to you a little bit about Naomi, about her family, because they are key to where Ruth plays a role in salvation history together. So, in the land of promise, in the land that God covenantally gave to the children of Israel, there was a promise that said, if you are obedient, if you reserve yourself for God alone, then He said this, you won't, you won't experience sicknesses, no plagues will come your way, your land will always prosper. Your children, you'll have children and children's children. You'll always be, always be able to reproduce. All kinds of promises of success and favor and blessing. This is what we call the hesed, the loving kindness of the Lord, the covering love of the Lord. So when we read as the book of Ruth opens, we read that there's a famine in Bethlehem, then that should get your attention because God is always faithful to His promises. If there is a famine in a land where there shouldn't be famine, it means that the people have wandered astray. That they've gone after other gods for their prosperity. They've gone after other things than the will of God for their lives, for their satisfaction and their fulfillment. So Naomi's family is one of these who has backslidden. They have gone back to old ways. Her husband's name is Elimelech. And Elimelech, I think by the Scriptures here, basically rejects and turns his his back on, forsakes, 
the God of his fathers. He forsakes the Hesed. He forsakes the favor of the Lord. One of the first indications of this is he names his children after Canaanite gods. He does not name his children with Israelite names. He names them with the gods of the region of the tribes around there, which shows that he has turned his faith away from God to other things. But the second thing is that when the going gets tough and the famine comes, he doesn't stay and repent and pray. Elimelech sells the family land in Bethlehem. And he moves to Moab. Now, Moab is one of the number one enemies of Israel. And one of the reasons that the Moabites and the Israelites have such tension and conflict is that the Moabites are descendants of Sodom. They are known as the most wicked pagan people in the region where Israel is to be obedient, committed, faithful to God. The Moabites are wicked. They sacrifice their children to the gods. They, they live in sexual immorality. All manner of evil is a part of their lives. And so here Elimelech goes from the land of promise into the land of the pagans. Now, he thinks that going there, he's going to be independent. He thinks he's going to be able to make a life for himself. I, fooey on you, God. I don't need you. I can do it myself. And he gets there, and he gets established in Moab, so much so that he gives his two sons, two, two Moabite women, pagan women as wives, which is another act of defiance against God. And then things begin to fall apart. See, Elimelech dies. He's not so independent anymore. He's not so able to provide. He's not his own source. He's dead. Then the scripture says, Malon dies and Kilion dies. So here is this very important lesson right in the start of this, of this, of this book. You want to be a Lemelech? You're going to die. You want to trust in Malon and Kilion? You're going to die. You will not have said. See, what happens... If you understand the loving kindness of the Lord, it is an umbrella in the rain. And what happens to a lot of us is we never use the umbrella, but we curse the rain. We tell everybody how wet we are, how horrible life is, everything. But we don't realize that all along we have a covenant promise that all we have to do is activate by our confession. When the, tough, when the going got tough, he didn't repent and he didn't activate his confession. What he did was he sought after other gods. And when he did that, it ended his life. And not only did it end his life, it ended his legacy. For he had no sons to carry on. There were no grandchildren. There were no sons. It was, he was completely wiped off the face of the earth. The Bible doesn't fool around, friends. Okay, so, all right, we have this pretty, pretty terrible story in a way. And yet what I had you read says there's hope, even in the midst of the worst story. Now, you have to understand how terribly bad this is for Naomi. I, I would say that what you see is a progression in the book where she goes from, from ruin to, 
to resolve to restoration or redemption. And so when you look at how, how, how utterly devastated she is, a widow in that time only had four ways of possibly surviving. And of course, she wants to survive. So uh, can I just say this real quickly? The biblical figures, their life goes into the, into the pit, but they never take their own lives. Modern thing is, if, if everything's lost to you, you just kill yourself. It, the ancients didn't think they had the right to take their own lives, even when their own lives didn't go the way they wanted them to go. Now, Naomi wanted to survive, and, and uh, when, the only way that a widow could survive in those days is these four ways. She could work in the fields, but Naomi said, I'm too old, I'm too old to do this. I can't do this. I'll starve. She could marry, but you have to understand, in those days, you didn't marry for companionship. And you didn't marry for sexual fulfillment. You married so you could have children. So there was no man waiting at the Bethlehem Retirement Village <laughs> to be her companion. Since she could not deliver a child, she was not going to be marriageable. It's just the culture of that time, that's the way it worked. And so, if you're a widow, you had to have children of your own, and the children had the obligation of taking care of you. But remember what happened to her children. They're both dead. And all she's got left are these two Moabite women. One of them, her name is Orpah, and the other is Ruth. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when I put Orpah into my PowerPoint, it immediately spell-checked it for Oprah. Which I've heard the story that Oprah's mother was trying to name her Orpah, but misspelled it and it stayed Oprah. So it, it's probably prophetic anyway. But uh, so we, we've got Orpah and you've got Ruth. Now, here's the thing you have to understand of why this means nothing for her survival. In a religious country where it's legalistic religion, if you are not of that tribe, if you're not of that religion, you are seen as less than. You are seen as no higher than an animal. And so since you're not of our tribe, and since you're of a, a different tribe that we hate, and you're of a different religion, any Moabite woman coming into the land would then be subject at least to constant racial slurs every time she is seen. But not only that, because she is a woman and she is a Moabite woman, no man would think twice about raping her because they would not see it as actually raping a person. And there would be no punishment for that rape. And there would be every likelihood that because she's a Moabite, they would kill her. And so if you think about any, either of these women, women, either Orpah or Ruth, in any way being able to support Naomi, that's not even a possibility. So Naomi's looking at this and saying, what do I have? Because the last thing is you could rent out your land as a, as a widow. But the problem is Elimelech has already sold their land, so they have no land to rent out. So she has nothing, she has no name, she has no significance whatsoever. And yet, when we read chapter 4, verse 15, it says that this woman who had nothing is redeemed. Now, I love Naomi because she is a spiritually transparent woman. Yes. 
You know, when she comes back, when she comes back into her people and, and is there with her cousins and her family and all of these people, she goes, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi is the word pleasant. So every time that someone said to her, pleasant, it just struck a knife in her heart because she didn't feel pleasant. As a matter of fact, she says, call me Mara, which means in Hebrew, life sucks. Well, it actually means bitterness, but this is the New Living Translation. <laughs> My life sucks. That's her name now. So everybody used to say, oh, pleasant, it's good to see you. Now they say, life sucks, it's not so good to see you anymore. It's the way that she wants to be remembered. And so what is it that changes her from bitterness to redeemed? And what we see is in this text, there's some ambiguity of who her Redeemer is. And actually what I'm going to unpack for you today is there are three Redeemers in the story. So the first Redeemer is this. There's a formal Redeemer or a legal Redeemer. In the, the law of God, there was provision. Kent, will you, I know I'm going to talk a little bit about God's law for a minute, but would you track with me about this? This is one of the most beautiful imageries of how much God loves His people and how much He loves the poor and how much He cares for even those who have devastated themselves. God in His law, in His provision, was always making a place for the destitute, even if they caused it through their own poor choices and their poor decisions. So there was this legal redeemer who could provide a way of restoring what had been lost. And one of the one of the most beautiful uh, solutions in the law, and it's, it's, it's not political, it's not a program, it's just compassion and it's mercy and it's this. In the land of, of God's law, in the land of His promises, no one was allowed to maximize their profits. Everyone had to live on less than 100%. Because they always had to make provision for those who had nothing. So the farmer was not allowed to harvest all his crops. He had to leave the boundary, 10% of the boundary, everything that was on the road, 10% of that had to be left so the poor could come and glean. No one gave them a handout. No one made them lose the dignity of being able to do good work. But what they were able to do was feed their families. They were able to feed themselves. There was, God was concerned. He was not idealistic when it came to people and their ability to destroy themselves. And so he made a way that in his land, no one would starve. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful thing when you see it. And so... So what Ruth does, Ruth is a young woman. She comes back with Naomi. And what Ruth does is she sees a field and there is that area that is left for gleaning. And she goes into that field to glean so there's food for her and her mother-in-law. And, and totally coincidentally, just sheer luck, that field belongs to a man by the name of Boaz who happens to be a kinsman of Naomi. And Boaz sees Ruth. Now I think in the text it's really clear that Boaz is old, but he ain't cold. 
And he sees Ruth and he notices Ruth. And he goes, you can not only glean, but come into the harvest and you can harvest all you want and you can work right beside my workers. And then he does something that's just really amazing. Remember how badly treated Moabite women would be? Boaz says to his workers, you will not treat her like that. You're not going to do racial slurs against her. You're not going to abuse her. You're not going to be jealous of her. You're not going to rape her. You're not going to do violence against her. Anybody does that, they're going to answer to me. So, Ruth goes home with a, a boatload of corn. You know what I mean? She goes home with a harvest. And Naomi goes, that's a whole lot more than gleaning. And then Ruth says, well, this guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes, aha! And what happens is, what happens is what happens to a lot of us. Naomi starts wanting to be the one who makes the process work. She gets ahead of God. And she starts figuring out how she can manipulate, how she can leverage, how she can do all of this stuff. And she almost screws the whole redemption up. Ever done that? Where you start telling God how to save you? The God who knows the end from the beginning? The God who has a bigger plan to save you than your little plan to just get you out of trouble. So Naomi kind of screws up. But at the same time, there's this incredible Levitical provision called the kinsman redeemer. And the Hebrew word there is goel. And so Naomi goes, Boaz could be our our goel. He could be our redeemer. He could be the one who could take us from nothing to something. So, again, this is the beauty of how God provided. You see, they were already in the land, and when they were in the land of promise, God distributed the land to families, to the different tribes. And everybody got a really satisfactory kind of farm to to, to be in or, or area to be in. And remember, we're in the area of those who are in the line of Judah. We're in the area of the line of Salmon and Rahab who were the founders of Bethlehem. This is that family that's right in that area. And so God has a way. Even though Elimelech left his God, God had not left the family. And even though Elimelech sold his heritage... God still had a way of redeeming the land for a family, but it would take 50 years. It would take a long time. So God had a second way that you could redeem your land, and that is if a kinsman would go and pay your debt, if they would stand for you, if they would take their wealth and get back what you have lost. And that person was called a goel. But see, this would be an incredible thing because he's going to have to ransom them out of their debt. But not only that, there's no heir to give the land to. So he's got to marry somebody and produce a child. Well, Naomi's too old. And if you look at the story closely, Ruth doesn't even seem like a possibility because she's a Moabite. She's got no place in the covenant. She's got no place in the land whatsoever. She's got no rights to the, to the worship of God or anything else. And yet, what we see is Boaz takes a to- terribly unsuitable woman, 
pays her debt and makes her his wife. Are you hearing me? So the story of how she becomes his wife is, is really quite fascinating. So Naomi says, get your best looking, sexiest clothes on. Now when she sends Ruth to Boaz, it's midnight. Nothing really good happens at midnight. Come on, I mean, you know that, right? And what we read is, you see, they've been, they've been pressing the wine, so they've been sampling the wine, and what you see is Boaz is out, and he's not out because he's tired. He's merry. He's very merry at that moment. So, and he's out, and at that moment, Naomi says, go to him. So what we see in, the, in this thing is what could have been an incredibly awkward, horribly inappropriate thing, because if you send your daughter out, usually you send 15 brothers with her to protect her virtue, you know, kind of a thing. And so she sends her out at midnight with the most alluring clothes that she owns. And she goes to this very intimate place where he is. And then the scripture says she uncovers his feet, which is tantamount to, you must marry me. All right, do you not see how amazing this is? This is a book in the Bible. This is early on in the Bible kind of a thing. And here it is. Not only is she a woman, but she's also a Gentile. She's of the Moabites. She's not totally unsuitable in, in every way. And she's forward. She asked him to marry him. That was not, that's not even heard of in those days. And so everything here is countercultural. And yet the Scripture says... She was a godly woman. And he was a godly man. So they took an unsuitable situation and then they turned it into a redemptive moment. Because he takes his covering and covers her and marries her. He becomes her bridegroom. He takes his wealth and he pays her debt. And when she marries him, all his wealth, legally, automatically, immediately, everything he is and everything he has becomes her. And she who had nothing is now the mistress of quite a bit of land and property and a name. A name that's the covenantal name through which the Messiah himself will come. Do you understand? In this first Redeemer, you've got to see that this is the Redeemer you need. You need a Redeemer who will own your worthless name. You need a Redeemer who knows you're outside of the covenant, you're outside of the biology, you're outside of the promises, but He doesn't care about that because He loves you. And even if you've approached Him totally wrong and unsuitable in every way, He desires you, He loves you, and the minute that you become His, His wealth is yours. You become joint heirs with Jesus. Everything that His Father has, Jesus gives to you. You must have a formal Redeemer or you will not be close to God. But you need a second Redeemer. And notice something about this second Redeemer. The name of this book is not the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth because Ruth is the hidden and surprise Redeemer in this. In chapter 4, verse 15... All of the ladies in the village, all the ladies in Bethlehem say something that's so outrageous culturally. 
They say to Naomi, this Ruth, this daughter-in-law of yours, loves you, and she is better to you than seven sons. Seven sons in traditional culture was the perfect family. If you had seven sons, you could work the fields. You could protect the farm. You could make sure that your family would prosper. If you had seven sons, you're probably going to have 49 grandsons. <laughs> you know, so, so the idea of seven sons and to say about this Moabite woman, to say about any woman to tell you the truth and to say that she's worth more to you then seven sons says she's the surprise redeemer in this story. And here's the work of redemption. It's the resolve of Ruth that redeems Naomi. And many of us know this, know this, this, this statement that she made, this, word, this declaration that Ruth makes. It's, it's often quoted in marriage ceremonies and weddings. I love this. Do not ever urge me to go nor desert your side and leave. And she, she brings in a sense that if I am to leave, may God to do more to me if anything but death separates you from me. And she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. It's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful statements. But it happens at a crossroad. It's as Naomi is headed home, as she is going back. If, if you think about it, anybody that immigrates to a new land, they immigrate and they usually are saying something like this, I am looking for a better... Only one of you knew that? <laughs> a better what? Life. Not just for me, but for my own family. Do you understand? When she makes this declaration, she has no husband. She's going to a land where no husband will take her. She's going with a woman who has no resources. She is making a declaration at the crossroads of an unconditional commitment to Naomi. But even more than that, she commits to Naomi. What she's doing is she's confessing her conversion. She is saying, your God is now my God. And when she says that, you see, she doesn't use the, the general name of God, which is Elohim. Here is this Moabite woman who has been so transformed by the presence of the real God that she calls Him by His love name. She calls Him by His covenant name, by His name of romance and relationship. She calls Him her Yahweh. She has to leave everything she knows she has to leave her home, her prospects, her security. She has to leave her gods behind. And one of the reasons that she does it is if she stays, her faith will not grow. But if she goes with Naomi, her faith will grow into a mighty thing. And so she makes this choice. See, I want you to see the type of redeemer that Ruth is. Ruth knows if Naomi is going to have a life, Ruth has to throw her life away. Ruth knows that she has to impoverish herself so that she can redeem Naomi. Do you not see this is the Lord Jesus Christ? He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He impoverished himself. He emptied himself. 
He didn't even think that his own divinity, his own deity was something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He threw his life away so that you could have life. You see, it takes two redeemers in this story to make one Jesus. You have to have the formal redeemer. You need the bridegroom. You need someone who has wealth and resources and has a name that you can now connect yourself to because there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also need one who was willing to meet you right in your own poverty of spirit, poverty of life, and to say to you, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Are you hearing me? Five of you. I'll keep going. So what I want, I want, I really want to talk to believers right now. I'm not trying to exclude anybody, but I really think this story really speaks to us who have decided to be disciples of Jesus. The first thing that it speaks is this. Ruth didn't come to faith apart from the spiritual friendship that she experienced with Naomi. There was no sermon that led her to Christ. There was no lecture. There were no books that led her to Christ. It was the life of Naomi in the midst of ruin and devastation that led her to a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I, what I mean by this is that there's an example here of what I would say utterly and completely inclusive love while never losing an exclusive faith. You see, she included Orpah. She included Ruth. But she never lost that her faith was utterly and completely in the Lord, in, in the Lord Himself. It was not in the Moabite gods. Even though her husband had backslidden, Naomi had not. And so Ruth saw a real faith because no matter what, whether she went back or she went with her, Naomi loved her. You know, when Orpah went back, Naomi prayed a blessing over her. And the blessing she prayed wasn't in the name of the Moabite gods. It was in the name of Yahweh. Though she loved the one who was returning to her counterfeit gods, she didn't bless her with the name of the counterfeit gods. She blessed her with the name of the God of heaven and earth. And when she loved on Ruth, Ruth saw a real inclusive love. And in that inclusive love, she embraced Naomi's exclusive faith. Can people see that in you? That's how you win people to Jesus. But the second thing is, is this. is You look, you look at this, this story and you realize... That whatever is ultimate to you is ultimately what will either lift you up or it will ultimately disappoint you. Naomi was so bitter because though she had faith in Yahweh, her ultimate faith was in her family. She lost what was ultimate. You see, if she had said, ultimately I have God and that's enough, then she would not have been bitter. But ultimate to her was being a wife, being a mother. So much so that when she came back, she said to those that she said, call me bitter. She said to them, I left full, I come back empty. I had everything, now I have nothing. 
Now, if I'd been Ruth standing right beside her, I'd go, what am I, chopped liver? But see, what she's saying is, I made my family ultimate. And by making my family ultimate, even though that's a good family is a good thing, it's not an ultimate thing. So they disappointed me. They left me devastated because what is ultimate defines you. Now this also is really important in this story. Do you not see that some of the things that we by nature say are ultimate are very disappointing? For example, you might laugh at her and say, "Why? well, you know, you, you, you still have value. Just because you don't have children or you don't have a husband, you still have value and you're laughing at them for being unsophisticated in their ancient ways. And yet, look at us. If you don't have the perfect figure, you're destroyed. If you don't have enough money in the bank or a success at your job. See, we just trade one ultimate for another and we just make it more sophisticated and more modern. Or take it another step. These same tribal issues are still in existence today. There's still family issues that my, my race, your race, my culture, your culture. We make these things ultimate. And God is saying in the book of Ruth, anything you make ultimate that has to do with race or, or culture or ethnicity or any of these things, do you not see that I have lifted up who you think is nothing? Do you not see that the book that's been put into this Bible is a book about a Moabite woman? And those who say, oh, we've got to be racially pure, God really messes that up. If you think about it, many of us would say, I mean, I, I love King David. I mean, I, David and Goliath has always been my favorite story. I love King David. It would be awesome if I send off my DNA and I find out I'm, I'm somehow related to King David. I would love that. I would love that, okay? And so would so many other people. But look who's in his lineage. Tamar, a Canaanite. Rahab, a prostitute. I mean, Tamar was a practice prostitute. Uh, Rahab was a pro. I mean, <laughs> you know, and now he's got a Moabite yeah. as, a, as a grandmother. Right. The dude isn't pure. He's mixed. Right. And he's the king. Yes. And he's, he's lifted up. He's the king that is the setup for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And guess what? Gentiles slipped in there. I mean, are you hearing me? Do you understand how, how we have not understood God because we, we just avoid some of His Word? God has always loved what He has created in its diversity. And He has always wanted us to have a heart for that same diversity. And the truth is, the whole thing gets really blown up in the New Testament where He says, He came into His own, His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, notice it doesn't say as many Jewish people or as many from the line of Judah come in to receive Him. It says, as many as receive Him, they are given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Do you understand? Biology is now trumped by a genealogy of spiritual transformation. Are you tracking with me on this? 
And then it also, doesn't that mean in many ways that if I treat somebody who's different from me as if they're less than me, I've not understood the gospel? Racial slurs, violence, abuse, raping someone because you're treating them like an animal, not like a human? Are those not indicators that I do not know the God of the Bible? And what flows out of that as well is you cannot read this without realizing Ruth is an example of discipleship like no other. She is an unconditional disciple. Many of us have come to God and we say, Oh God, if you'll just give me a husband, I'll come to you. Or go, God, if you just give me children, I'll come to you. Oh God, if you just get me out of this test or this homework or this this situation, if the cop won't see me as I drive by at 150 miles an hour, you know, if you'll just, we're all in this trying to get a bigger, better deal with God. And here's real discipleship. Do not ever urge me to go or desert your side and leave for, for may you do more to me if anything but death separate you from me. That's unconditional discipleship. Knowing that the future isn't under control. Knowing the future is unknown. And yet saying, where you go, I will go, God. Where you lodge, I will lodge. There is an unconditional aspect of discipleship if you truly are a believer. You can't, you, you don't negotiate with God. You don't say, God, uh, you know, I'm just going to have a sex with a few people. You don't say, oh God, you know, you know uh, all this money is mine, but you know, I will do this or that instead. You, you start to realize the whole thing here is he belongs to you. He paid your debt. He bought the land back that you squandered. And he married you. And you belong to him. And so the ultimate redeemer in this passage is not someone born to Ruth. The ultimate redeemer is Jesus himself. See, in, in fact... To me, Ruth is a crushing book because I am much more like Naomi than I am Ruth. You know, I have often said, oh God, it's so bad. You know, I'm going to eat some dirt. Nobody loves me, you know. You know, just self-pity, all kinds of stuff, wanting to give up, wanting to quit, wanting to run away from my marriage, wanting to run away from ministry, wanting to run away, all of these things. And yet here you see this little this little Moabite woman who never gives up and who never quits. And if that doesn't crush you, you're not listening. What this story says is you're not a redeemer. You need a redeemer. See, you need the combo of Boaz and Ruth. And the only one who has the DNA of both is the baby born in Bethlehem in a manger. In this, if, if you read that story, you see them putting this baby, Obed, into the, into the arms of Naomi. And it's in Bethlehem. And then when you read in, in Matthew and in Luke, you see they put the baby in Bethlehem into the arms of Mary. And it is connected, friends, because the Redeemer who's born, this Obed, doesn't do what is prophesied. Only Jesus can do what is prophesied. And when you come to Jesus... You get the wealth of the bridegroom and He pays the debt of your sin and He ransoms you from the, 
from the control of sin, but he also is that suffering servant who willingly impoverished himself so that you might have wealth. He threw away his life, his safety, his security, so that you might have safety and security. He was rejected, so you'll never have to be rejected. He was forsaken, so you never have to be forsaken. Even better than that is this. <laughs> Ruth said, death's going to separate me from you. Jesus said, oh no, it's not. And he entered into death and he destroyed death so that even death will not separate you from him. I want to talk just for a minute. I got a few minutes here. I want to talk about that kind of discipleship that says, Lord, I'm willing to give everything to you. Now, you might say, well, it was easy for Naomi. She had nothing, but she had to go home. She had to go home with nothing. She had to go home feeling utterly dejected. She had to go home saying, I'm, I've been cursed. I was blessed, now I'm cursed. And going home, you see, God was able to move in such circumstances and redeem everything in such a way that that good act of going home becomes something that makes Naomi great and makes her name great. Here we are, thousands of years later, we're still studying her. See, I think, it, I think in everybody's life there comes moments where God says, are you just going to go for what you think is good? Are you going to give that to me so that I can make it great? So there's a story I want to tell you. Back in 1917, there were two African-American women from Harlem who went to a church in, in uh, Manhattan that was an all-white church. And uh, I don't know exactly how it happened that they were there, but they came to saving and just miraculous, wonderful faith in Jesus. And as they tried to get discipled and taught at that church, they were told by the leaders of the church, you can't go here. No black people can go to this church. And they were rejected and they were sent away. Well, this one young woman knew these two women and she had, she had, she had uh, felt in her spirit, she had felt like God was saying, disciple these two women. Now, this young woman was of German descent. She was a uh, a young woman who was engaged to be married. So she went to her fiancé and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me to go to Harlem and to disciple these two women. And her uh, fiancé said, well, you choose. It's either me or them. And he said, I will not have you associating with black people. And so she chose. She knew it was a hard choice. She loved him. She chose the two women and discipleship over her engagement and her marriage. And so in 1917, there began a movement in Harlem that is now called the Bethel Gospel Fellowship. And if you look at that church and you look online, the pastor there is a friend, he's someone I, uh, he and his wife are someone that I'm friends with. They are, they are creating a community of faith, a community of advancement, of progression. They, the city trusts them. They are so... So, such a place of integrity, such a place of impact and power. But it all started with two people who were rejected, then another who joined them unconditionally when she was rejected. And God started something very small that became something big because three people said, I will unconditionally follow you. Listen, when Boaz made Ruth his wife he took his garment 
and he covered her. Everything he was, everything he had, his name, his wealth, his status, everything became hers. In the same way, when you come to Jesus, you have to take off your old garment. He meets you right where you are and he says, here's my robe. And it's a robe of righteousness. You become the righteousness of God in Christ. And it doesn't matter. Your garments can be soiled and stained. Your past can be checkered and and fallen in every way. But Jesus says, no, don't worry about that. I am covering you with my garments. He has become our righteousness. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today? Can you feel what I'm feeling? This story is just... I I wept numerous times as I was writing this, just thinking through, one, how much God loves us. I mean, think about that. He doesn't want people not eating. He he made provision for the poor. What What an awesome God we had. And then when a family screws up, he made a way back. But he did all of that to show his character. Jesus is our Boaz. But Jesus is our Ruth. And without Ruth, it doesn't matter if you have a Boaz. You need someone. You need someone who will say, I will unconditionally go with you, even into death for you. I love this thought. He was treated the way I deserve, so that now I am treated the way he deserves. Would you hold out your hands? Would you mind doing that? Just hold out your hands. You know what this story says? He can redeem any mess you're in. Naomi had nothing. You may have nothing but a mess. Would you put that mess into your hands if it's a relationship, if it's your finances, your health, if it's your future? And would you say, instead of redeeming myself, you are my redeemer, Lord. You are my redeemer. If you want the Hebrew, he is your goel. He is your kinsman redeemer. But the other thing is this. I have found that whenever I put things into his hands, he's a surprise redeemer. You know what's interesting in the book of Ruth? There are no miracles there. The whole book is a miracle. But it's God orchestrating windows and doors to walk in. If you put what you need redeemed, your pain, your suffering, whatever it is, into your hands and offer it to him he can make something beautiful he'll give you beauty for ashes he'll give you a garland of praise for mourning Lord we see what you're doing now in Jesus name Amen. amen God bless you thank you for being here today see you tonight